I'm going to tell you a story. Now, it's not a true story. It's not even based on any specific person that I know, but it's the type of story that happens all the time. Maybe it's even happened to you or someone you know. This is the story of Jane. Jane had always dreamed of becoming a lawyer. Growing up in a low-income neighborhood, Jane had to work hard to overcome many, many obstacles in her way. She was an excellent student, she always worked harder than everyone else, and even attended a good college and a good law school. And eventually, she received her law degree, but she ran into a problem. Despite her impressive credentials, Jane struggled to find a job. She applied to law firm after law firm after law firm and sat for several interviews but was always passed over. And she couldn't figure out why, but now that the student loan payments were due, she had a lot of external pressure influencing her decisions. Jane couldn't understand what was going on. She'd done everything right. She'd worked really, really hard and put herself in positions to make this dream possible, but it just wasn't working. So she decided to take a job working the front desk at a law firm. I mean, she wasn't a lawyer, but she had bills to pay. And as long as she got in the door, she knew that she could get the job she wanted. She just needed a shot. But that didn't happen either. Jane watched as applicant after applicant was brought in and hired. Meanwhile, she hadn't even been considered for those roles. And eventually, the frustration and sense of failure started to build. Now, we won't finish Jane's story because, well, it's kind of all of our stories. Factors we can't control, such as gender expression, sexuality, race, and other socioeconomic issues, have a unique ability to limit the list of potential opportunities that come our way. And it's time that we learn about it. And not only that, but learn how to end it. So, get excited, because this is Tiny Leaps. Big Changes. Big changes. Today, we jump back into my conversation with Jessica Nordell about bias, what it is, how it affects us, and how we end it. Jessica Nordell is a science writer, award-winning author, and speaker known for blending rigorous science with a compassionate humanity. Her first book, The End of Bias, A Beginning, won the Nautilus Award and was shortlisted for the Columbia Journalism Lucas Prize for Excellence in Nonfiction, the New York Public Library Bernstein Book Award for Excellence in Journalism, the Royal Society Science Book Prize, and the National Association of Science Writers Book Prize. The End of Bias was also named a Best Book of the Year by the World Economic Forum, Greater Good, AARP, and Inc. Magazine, and is currently being used by organizations from newsrooms to NBA teams to healthcare organizations to solve some of their biggest cultural challenges. 
This is the second of a two-part conversation on bias, so if you haven't listened to part one yet, I actually encourage you to pause this episode, go listen to part one, and then come back here. And with that said, without further delay, here's part one of my conversation with Jessica Nordell. I feel, in a lot of ways, I'm, and I put this in air quotes for those of you listening, fortunate. Uh, that my name, for example, doesn't necessarily communicate any particular race. Um, And my entire career has existed online. And so a lot of people that I interact with, even listeners of this podcast who've been listening to me for three, four, five years, have no idea that I'm Black. And I think in a lot of ways that does, like masking it without, in my case, not needing to intentionally mask it, but Masking it does allow me to operate in a way where I don't have to ask the question. Like there doesn't have to be in the back of my mind, oh, did they not respond because or Mm -hmm. uh, did they pass on this deal because of and and, like I never have to ask that until I get on a Zoom call with them. But um, it is it is really freeing in a lot of ways and, and in ways that. I specifically notice are different when I do uh, this type of thing in the real world or or uh, when I was working full time in offices and so on and so forth. And it's interesting that, I mean, it makes total sense that that exists in journalism, but it's interesting how quickly the change occurred. Like it wasn't, oh, let me send it, this out under a different name and 5, 10, 15, 100 uh, uh, submissions later, oh, wow, it finally worked. It was very quickly, there was a difference. Yeah. Yeah. So what is, and I think that that leads me to another really interesting question, going back to uh, what we're discussing at the top about, like, is this even possible to, to fix? In your mind, what does a vision of success look like? I mean, if I could like wave my magic wand, what would the what would the ultimate yeah, snap outcome your fingers, be? You can have the perfect situation. Oh my gosh! I think you know what would be incredible is if is if there could be a situation where people from all sorts of different backgrounds, all, all sorts of different walks of life, all sorts of different identities, could come together and see each other in three ways at once. First of all, as individuals, as totally individual and unique and special and extraordinary as individuals. Second, as people who come from differences, because we have a society that is organized around differences. So people have experiences that are based on the social identities that they're born into. And to be able to recognize that without setting up a hierarchy around it. And third, to be able to see others as fellow humans who share so much, you know, a need for belonging, a need for acceptance, a need for fresh air, a need for self-actualization, a need for, you know, basic needs, like all of these things that we have in common as fellow humans. Um, I think that would allow us to actually see reality, which is what bias blocks us from. 
I think that point of being able to see each other as humans is something that I'm really fascinated by because I don't know why that is so difficult, but like clearly it is like there is evidence throughout all of history that we are shockingly good at dehumanizing and and removing people from in our minds the category of being human. Yeah. We've done that over and over and over again. And and it's it's completely fine if you don't have like an answer for this, but just in your your like mind, why is that? Why are we so good at at doing that? Why are we so good at doing that? I I do not know the the you know evolutionary reason or neurological reason that we're good at doing that. Um, I know that what it what it creates is this is this contradiction, which is mm -hmm. that we are human. So if we treat another person as not human, we are contradicting reality. We are lying yeah. to ourselves and to the world. We are operating in a giant lie, a giant falsehood. And that does a huge amount of damage, I think, to our souls and our spirits. Yeah. I wonder if it just comes down to sort of like an artificial competition for resources. Yeah. Because if I think like, where would the original sort of in-group, out-group exist might have been when when it was harder to feed yourself and feed your particular group. Mm -hmm. But I guess I wonder why that still, and obviously there, there are places in the world where like that is still very much a, a major problem, but in most, if not all, developed nations, there there's a surplus of food. There's a surplus of, of uh, all of the things we need to actually survive. So how is it that we can still be um, wired to separate ourselves from our neighbors or from mm -hmm. the people in the town over? Or even, and, and this is a, a silly example, but even the the in-group, out-group that happens in high schools with, like, the rival team. Like, that's so much a part of our culture. Yes. Yeah, and I remember, like, as a as a kid growing up, I was not I was not very athletic, so I was not on sports teams, or I was always recruited, like, last or second to last on any team in gym class. But part of, I think, the reason that I was so bad at sports was I just couldn't develop this outgroup animosity that you kind of have to have like i just yeah. didn't care like that <laughs> i couldn't i don't know i couldn't like switch into feeling like i'm on this team and someone else is on this other team and i want to defeat them it didn't it never made sense to me i didn't mm -hmm. I just um yeah i mean I, th I think you're right about competition for resources a sense of scarcity and of course, we know that group-based animosity is also, you know, has political benefits for some groups or economic benefits for, for some groups. Mm -hmm. And so, um, right. you know, I think a lot of these, I, I think, you know, a lot of the kind of group-based animus that we see if you trace it back far enough it was it, it benefited somebody it was you know it was helpful to to a group in power if you look at like the rwanda example that i share 
in the book, mm-hmm. we know that the Tutsi and the Hutu before um, colonialism actually were not these sort of hard and fast groups. Like people could move between groups through marriage or through change of social status. But when the Belgians colonized, it was useful for the Belgians to have really strict ethnic groups. And so they promoted that in a variety of ways. And of course, to, with disastrous results. Yeah. So on a lighter note, (laughs) uh, well, not really lighter. Okay. So you are, um, let me ask you, are you still working as a journalist? Yeah, well, I so I'm right now I'm doing a lot of work around this book. I'm doing a lot of speaking mm-hmm. and um, book related events. But I am. Yeah, I'm, I'm working on some journalistic projects in the background as well. OK, so how have you found since completing the book? The there's a there's an inherent conflict in my mind between the speed that is required to be a journalist and and getting things out. Yeah. And this idea of if you are working faster, you are more likely to lean into bias. How have you found navigating that? As a journalist. As a journalist, yeah. That's that's a really interesting question. You know, I would say I'm I'm not right now I'm not in the kind of like quick turnaround mode. Um, that I have been in the past, but certainly, I mean, I can think of an example of of a story I wrote that had a pretty tight timeline, and I was not able to get as many interviews as I needed in order to write this really write the story perfectly well, and it was serviceable, but it missed it missed a lot. And in fact, that particular after that particular story came out. Um, it, it was well received generally, but there were a few people who reached out to me and said they thought that it had a patronizing tone and a bit of a condescending tone. And I know that that came from me not having the time to um, to, to to source it as deeply as mm-hmm. I would have. And so I probably did rely or you know default in some ways to some stereotypes. So what would you do, and, and let's project out into the future a little bit, if you find yourself in um, a like major time crunch for mm-hmm. a specific story, how would you think about adding roadblocks or, or, or just like tools to get yourself to do the additional uh, work that you need or to avoid it if you can't do that? I mean, one thing that I do now with all my writing is I... I share it with a very wide range of people before it gets published because Mm. I find that people from lots of different backgrounds and walks of life have very different reads of the same material. And I want to make sure that I'm not missing something. Um, So that's, that's, that's one thing that I do is I try to bring in as many readers as possible. Which I think is, is, if that were possible to apply to every situation, like I think that would be the answer. Because um, to your your earlier point, if if we could create this sort of perfect situation where people can see uh, uh, a large group of other people based on these three factors that you laid out, 
most of what makes that valuable is you're going to get different perspectives and you're going to connect with people and your perspective will change as a result of those connections. Um, so having almost like a, um, uh, a board of directors that is, is you're turning to, to say, Hey, will you look at my work? And uh, that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, unfortunately you can't really apply that to like, how you interact with a person. Right. Wait, freeze frame. I'm going to refer to my board of directors and then we'll continue this conversation. (laughs) That would be amazing. (laughs) Um, So then on that note, where do we start? Whether on an individual or a cultural societal level, like in your mind, where do we start with this? I think we start by starting to observe what's happening in our own minds while it's happening. Because I think one of the big risks of bias is that it can be so automatic and spontaneous that we don't actually realize that our our interaction with someone is being influenced by stereotypes, by things that are not necessarily true. Um, But once we start to actually slow down and practice observing what's happening in our own minds, then that's like the first step of agency. It's the first it's the first step of freedom because when you see what's happening in your own mind, then you can choose. Then you have a choice. Do I do I want to gather more information or do I do I want to proceed as I was planning to? Or is there a third option? Like what's going on here? Um, so I would say first practicing slowing down and watching what's happening in our own minds. Another word for it really is mindfulness. It's practicing Mm -hmm. mindfulness. Another approach that I find really powerful is contact theory. Not just getting to know people of different groups, but actually working collaboratively on a shared, toward a shared goal with people Mm -hmm. from different groups. That those seem to be very important elements. So that's something that I do now. I mean, when I, when I'm seeking out you know, activities or, or volunteering or, you know, d- new groups of people, I kind of look for that. I am trying to connect more with people who are not like me and find ways to do it through working together on something. I think that's, that's a, an approach that a lot of us could take. We just have to be intentional about seeking out those opportunities. Yeah. Jessica, thank you so much both for for writing the book. I I really think that this is, as you say, a beginning to tackling a a very large and and intimidating problem. So thank you for taking the time to go through that and and turning your own, honestly, and I don't want to speak for how you felt, but sounds like a painful experience into something that, that can potentially help stop other people from from experiencing that in the future uh and thank you for taking the time to be here this this i know meant a lot to my listeners it meant a lot to me so i just want to make sure i express that gratitude thank you so much i just appreciate so much your enthusiasm for the book and reading it so you know carefully and thinking about it and all your thoughtful questions so thank you I appreciate that. And the book is called The End of Bias, A Beginning. Links to it, of course, will be in the description of this episode. And uh, for those of you who are still listening, be sure to connect with Jessica. Uh, I'm going to have links to wherever she wants you to connect with her in the description (laughs) as well. Um, And thank you so much for spending the time with us. And as you go, remember that all big changes come from the tiny leaps you take 
every day. Earlier in the conversation, you talked about how you prefer the term unexamined bias over unconscious bias. Uh, and that got me thinking, so you are a journalist and you're also a poet. Mm -hmm. um, in other words, you work with words quite a lot. Um, how important do you think the rhetoric around these, whether it's bias or, or any other issues that, that uh, society deals with, how important do you think what we call it actually matters? You know, I'm kind of of two minds about it. On one hand, language is important because it is the bridge between people and the idea. And certain language creates certain reactions in people. I mean, mm -hmm. um, even talking about bias sometimes can create like a defensive reaction. And so I, I do think we have to be careful about the language we use. You know, I was having this conversation with a researcher, Erica Hall, and she particularly looks at when people use the term African-American versus the term black. And I asked her, and she's African-American herself, and I asked her, and she said, honestly, I don't care what language we use. We just need to, like, move forward. And I think I feel a little bit like that. Like, even going back to the unexamined versus unconscious uh, example, like, unexamined does make it feel much more practical and yes. like, here's a thing you can do. Yes. But to your last point, unexamined might make it feel more accessible, but the thing we need to do is still the same. Exactly. So can we just do the thing? Exactly. Yeah. 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 yeah.